Welcome to the Earthshot Podcast, where we champion the Earthshot, a monumental effort to achieve planetary regeneration, restoring the Earth and humanity's place within it. At Earthshot Labs, we're developing the science, technology, and financial systems in service of ecological restoration. I really can't, can't contour myself to the sentiment that humans are parasitic on this planet. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why would, why would nature allow us to create and proliferate and move as much as we can? We need every player on the field, right? There are this many billion people on this planet and we need every damn last one of them to give a damn and to do something about it. And I think we each have that capacity. I think we each have the capacity for unspeakable horrors, as is evident from the last couple of weeks, and for also unbelievable beauty and good and care. On today's episode, we'll be hearing from Mariana Senko, an Earthshot board member and founding partner at one of the most successful and radical venture capital firms on the planet, Future Ventures. Mariana is also one of the most expansive thinkers I know, and I deeply appreciated talking with her, covering everything from the pain of the Russian-Ukrainian invasion to how she makes investment decisions that can affect billions of people worldwide. Most podcasts and things like news are boring and dry because they don't actually touch on like the realness or the grief or the, yeah, just the realness of the way the world is. Um, so maybe I would love to just start this. And if you're able to share for a moment, like what is the situation in the world right now that you are seeing and or witnessing and also disturbed by and you don't need to have geopolitical wisdom on it but like what is the situation just to ground our conversation what is happening right now yeah and um it's it's a hard question because every every complicated situation the human mind wants to flatten it right and and make it palatable and and create it into a construct that we can fit in our skulls and the reality is that our world is never simple and disentangled um and there are never particularly linear lines in it so i think it's always important to state perspective and bias. My perspective is that I am a Ukrainian. I am a Russian-speaking Ukrainian. I am a Ukrainian who was born in the West, in Lviv. And we, as a family, left. Uh, we left in, I left with uh, my mother and father in 91 because they believed that essentially a conflict on the order of what we're seeing today was at the risk of happening then. I, I think my father called it correctly. He was just 30 years early. 
Um, and the reason for that is my perspective is that there is an ideology in the Kremlin that is does not appear to extend to the entirety of the Russian nation, but I think that many Russians are complicit, is that somehow Ukraine does not exist as a sovereign nation, that the people who are there are not entitled to be stewards of that land, and that they are undeserving of their culture and their language and essentially their continued existence. And what we're seeing, I think, increasingly as this war becomes deeply violent is the start of an extinguishing, an attempted extinguishing of the Ukrainian identity. And I think in turn, what we're seeing is an unbelievable rise of agency and sovereignty and, in, and freedom uh, of the Ukrainian people and their, their demand for recognition from the world. Uh, and, and I think they're very accurate request for their own continued existence on their land. And I think it's important for us to contextualize this because in the West, we try to think about what's happening in the world in a logical framework, right? We say, well, Ukraine was pushing to become a part of NATO and that's why this is happening. And <laughs> the simple reality is, um, that that comes much later as an as an ideology uh of of why from the russian side in fact they have a whole mythology uh uh the professor's name is escaping me um uh thomas snyder of yale he he's written a number of unbelievable books on this topic but i think what we need to remember is that Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Ancient Greece derived their grain from Ukraine. Uh, a huge amount of wheat export from Ukraine feeds Egypt. Uh, it is a central capacity for the continued existence of Europe is the ability to grow land, to grow on the land in Ukraine. And that's really what's at stake here, is that when, when you have such a fertile natural resource, and then you have a group of people who are stewards of that land, who have been stewards of that land for thousands of years, and we saw this with indigenous peoples in, in the Americas, all sorts of people come in with new novel mythologies of how those original stewards of that land, um, that they're wrong, that their histories are inaccurate, and that, in fact, there is some new world order that will come and fold them in 
to their way of being in the world. And that's really, really frightening to me as a Ukrainian is to watch all of us look at this conflict in a rational mindset when at the end of the day, we're just enabling so much hurt in the world, such profound tragedy. And over what? Like, for what reason? And, and the answer is the same reason that we always have conflict, natural resource, right? Whether it's oil or soil. And it's, it's a failure of our capacity as humans to actually collaborate and to exist in balance with nature and recognize the rewards that are reaped from the soil and actually be able to distribute them in equitable manners. Um, instead, so often we seem to want to single-handedly control these resources. And that seems to always end in tears. And that's, that's where I've been for the last couple of weeks, is mostly in tears over this and endeavoring to, to try to shift the balance of the scales. You have dedicated your life to the allocation of money to things that you think are good. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about where you find yourself in your, the, the way you spend your time and your work. And um, is it part of the answer to these conflicts? Like, or just where does it fit in? Uh... I rarely admit in polite company that I'm a venture capitalist um, because I find that in a lot of the company that I enjoy keeping, uh, stating my profession results in um, a lot of sideways glances and a mild sharpening of knives uh, and a strong feeling of capitalism is the enemy and venture capitalism is the tip of that particular spear of which so many of the world's evils appear to stem from, at least in uh, some portion of, of popular parlance. And my sense growing up with my parents having escaped the Soviet the fall of the Soviet Union, understanding the communism and the regime that my parents lived under where there was no free speech, where everything was oriented not around evolving market dynamics, but around controlling central ideologies, is I don't think that capitalism is a perfect solution. I don't believe in an unfettered, unregulated markets that sort themselves out. But I do believe in innovation and in the capacity for technology to address the fundamental inequities that show up in our societies. And I believe that capital particularly thoughtfully placed capital in interesting ideas early on can really tip the scales. And we've seen it, right? You see companies like 
Airbnb disrupting massive hotel chains and enabling a flow of capital to people who didn't really know how to, who couldn't, it's not that they didn't know, who, who just before didn't have a mechanism for improving their own means by taking an asset that they had and making more efficient use of it. And so I think that that's kind of the, the simple wrapper around venture capital, which people stamp and repeat. What we try to do at Future Ventures is we try to fund things that most people look at and say, what on earth? How does that work? Is that even possible? We try to fund the kinds of things that fundamentally shift the future balance of the world, hopefully for the better, ideally without preying on human frailty. We try our best to, to steer clear of, of projects that might tilt in that direction and things, and we really focus on things that aren't extractive to our environments. And we do that because we believe that technology is yet another tool that we have to continue an abundant existence on this planet. And there's a bunch of ways to do that, but our sentiment is that there's at least a portion of brilliance on this earth that has really, really good ideas about how we move forward, right? It has brilliant ideas about how we make plants more resilient to increasingly dire environmental constraints, how to have uh, fusion-based energy systems so we remove our reliance off of petrol states, uh, how to improve the immune systems of bees so that they're better pollinators and so that we can continue growing you know, the huge percentage of crops on Earth that are bee pollinated. Because we believe that the natural environment, that the environment of our world is so dynamic, is so brilliant, and can be self-healing if we figure out how to support it on that process. And so those are the kinds of things that we try to fund. But clearly from this answer, it's a, it's a long-winded answer, so there's often not space for that in a dinner party. I remember there was another thing you said to us once, which was like, you actually believe humans are pretty cool and like they're not just these extractive units destroying the environment and we should probably just protect nature and get rid of the humans and like you know decrease the population or whatever sort of belief people have about humans essentially are bad I, I wonder if you could share more on this like because I just remember being being struck by that and finding like deep agreement in myself. But I, I wonder if you could just expand on that a bit. I I really I really can't can't contour myself to the sentiment that humans are parasitic on this planet. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Like why would why would nature allow us to create and proliferate and move as much as we can uh, if we were an illness, 
that doesn't that I don't feel like one. Uh, I certainly meet people in the world. <laughs> I think we all do. Who <laughs> you go? Oh, you, you're you know you're you're kind of a walking cough. But I think at the end of the day, it's like that. Like those of us who move around the planet and act in a painful manner towards one another and to the planet, they're, they're in a fog, right? They're, they're mired in their own belief system of that somehow that there isn't enough on this planet for all of us, which by the way, every like time that, you know, someone has said, Oh, we've reached population capacity. We've blown right past that and continued to actually just be able to feed more people and actually raise the standards of living. Now, I don't believe that we can have infinite people on this planet, but I do believe that it turns out the carrying capacity of Earth is much, much greater than what uh, we once believed it might be. I also believe that we need every player on the field, right? There are this many billion people on this planet and we need every damn last one of them to give a damn and to do something about it. And I think we each have that capacity. I think we each have the capacity for unspeakable horrors, as is evident from the last couple of weeks, and for also unbelievable beauty and good and care. And that is the interesting dichotomy of the human condition. But I really believe that so much of why we exist here is to be conscious of the planet, right? We are consciousness manifest. We are the planet watching itself. We are the universe watching itself. We are paying attention. We're stewards. We have the capacity to tip the scales. So we really need to pay attention about which direction we're tipping them. So I'm not a believer that we're fundamentally, that we have to be good. I'm not one of those people who is of the mindset that we can't screw this up, right? There, that ideology also exists. I think that ideology is lovely and optimistic, but it also takes away a lot of agency and responsibility. I think actually the more honest perspective from my sentiment is we can screw it up. We might, we're on the edge of it. And we should really, really take agency for our actions because we have the capacity to do profound good and to live in concert with nature, as opposed to in cacophonous disagreement. See the light of the stars Hear the sound of the unseen Silence listen May it lift your heart And move your feet to run again May you wander
I think sometimes uh, for many people on this planet, when you consider these huge topics of war and ecological collapse, a lot of people do feel um, it's beyond them to do anything about this, that it's just so huge and complex and just beyond the comprehension of most people. How, like, I really was fascinated by your answer before. Like, how do you think, what do you think are the best ways to activate um, just every day, like billions of people who feel this sense of lack of agency in order to become the full, in their full power to help address these issues? I think you have to start with yourself, right? I think you can't, it's, it's like in the airplane, you, know, you have to put on your mask before helping others. Um, I think that if you can't breathe, if you can't look in a mirror with confidence and comfort about who you are and how you act in the world and are you living in alignment with your own morals, then I think you're going to have a really, really hard time feeling like you can enact change on anyone else, right? So the first step in feeling a sense of agency is feeling a sense of self-agency. And I recognize that that's not trivial, particularly in depending on, you know, what uh, race or gender or any number of myriad reasons that you might feel a lack of capacity, um, depending on where and when you're born, I still believe that the first step is to say, well, what can I tend to within myself, within my immediate environment, within my neighborhood? Because what I've learned is that it's actually all of those small happenstance connections that move mountains later. And you don't even realize it, right? Because those, those chains of complexity of human interaction and human interaction with each other and with nature are the things that actually flourish. And I think we see this in all sorts of simple ways. Like so many people feel helpless in response to this war myself included. My grandmother uh, has Alzheimer's and really needed medicine. And there's no medicine in this country right now. It's effectively like you, there are some, but the supply chains are all broken. It's, it's an absolute disaster. I started calling people. It took an enormous amount of effort for me. I thought, man, everybody has better things to worry about than whether or not, you know, my grandmother is going to have psychosis in two weeks. But I have to I kind of have to ask, right? And so I, I messaged friends in Europe on the East Coast and said, hey, my grandmother needs this medication. I have no idea how to get it to her, you know, but maybe if I start with getting the medication, then I can figure out how to get it there. I went to bed after sending out a couple of messages. By the time I woke up the next morning, I had strangers who I had never met, who I had never spoken with, texting me images of them holding the medication I needed in Hungary, in Serbia, and in Poland. Two days later, I had packets of medicine traveling over the Ukrainian border with couriers that I had also never met. And four days after the initial request was sent, the medicine was in my grandmother's hands. And by the way, I couldn't pay a single person in this supply chain. Like I tried and nobody would take money. <laughs> and I think that is this unbelievable construct of the beauty of humanity is 
all of us are looking for the big lift, right? The big thing we can do to somehow fix the world. And the answer is no, when someone needs your help, you just do it. And you do it in small ways because that has huge proliferations through the system. In the same way that when you plant a plant in your garden and then it dies after in you know after the fall in the winter season it's also then home to all this other life and to the sleeping pollinators and then a whole new thing rises up in its place the following spring so i think the answer is you you tend to what's in front of you and you just recognize that the big things work themselves out if you're doing everything you can that's within your grasp i want to know how you got here and not not like here like necessarily being a sort of well-known venture capitalist on the top of the salesforce tower looking over the bay but like sort of like got here in consciousness to have the quality of um compassion and perspective oh like are there are there <laughs> moments i mean it's a whole lifetime of things and more um but what are what are some things and maybe it could be mentors or teachers or experiences or like themes that that were just like this was this was important for me in my life oh um ah i could hug you guys um i grew up as an only child and um my grandmother loves to recount to me the story of when we first came to the US and I barely spoke English and a neighbor of mine who was a boy who was a couple of years older was riding a bicycle and he was like twice my size because you know children grow at different speeds and I think I was 4 and he was 7 and um he was riding a bicycle quite quickly and apparently i was pedaling my heart out and screaming at the top of my lungs that i want to bike faster <laughs> than, than this boy who's like quite clearly twice my size uh and that was just a thing that existed in me was um i somehow wasn't born with or it 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 just didn't it, I was I wasn't porous to a sense of here's your place in the world here's how the world works here's what's fair here's what's unfair I I just from a very young age had a sense of like no I just think things should go a particular direction because they, that seems more just and I would really be willing to put in an enormous amount of effort to arrive at the kind of more just state. Uh, I learned as a competitive swimmer that effort wasn't enough, that it actually also required talent. Um, and I learned that competitiveness for the sake of being competitive wasn't, wasn't a useful end state. And this meandering group of stories just is to say that as a kid, I was pernicious, competitive, and had like 
a deep moral framework that seemed like orthogonal to everything else. Like it just showed up in me. My parents would like look at me and scratch their heads and go like, here's our delightful, surprisingly righteous daughter. Don't get on the wrong side of an argument with her. <laughs> um, and I think I was very much at risk for becoming an intolerant asshole. And I'm not sure what shifted, to be perfectly honest. I just remember feeling a sense of how can I feel such a deep sense of what's correct when I only have my perspective? And I remember a series of kind of meditations and, and thoughts. Um, it, it really, I think that stemmed with reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning that said, that essentially kind of painted for me the picture of what would it look like if I wasn't born in the situation that I was born in, if I had different parents, right? Like what, what morals and perspectives would I hold if I was someone else? You know, would I, would I fundamentally believe that the same tenets that I believe are, are true today? And Viktor Frankl wrote in that book that um, essentially the best of us did not survive. And what he meant by that is that those who went into the Holocaust camps those who held on to their moral fiber and their integrity, they were the first ones in the gas chambers um, because essentially the, <laughs> the dominant party said, we're not going to turn these people, so we should just extinguish them. And I, I remember reading that book and thinking, I don't know how much I would weigh my continued existence versus some moral framework that I think I have. And that was the breaking point for me of being um, single-handedly judgmental of, of perspectives that I didn't inherently disagree with. Because I thought, is there a circumstance in which I might actually have arrived at that perspective, right? How much am I a product of my circumstance? And I think I've been sitting with that meditation for the last 20 plus years since it first came to me and have been always thinking in relation to other, especially when I feel in conflict of saying, okay, I'm in conflict with this person, but like, here's the lineage I come from. What is their lineage, right? I just, I, I believe that everyone is trying their damn best. Uh, and that's a nice place to start from, right? <laughs> Just, it makes the world a bit softer. You say peace is just a state of mind You help me reach it when I leave my behind In this city chaos and dust in our eyes Speeding at us, be sweet Tasting beauty when it aches in your 
described about the Viktor Frankl and the description of concentration camps and yet how still some people found a unexpected place of illumination and non-judgment for the entirety of what was happening. Um, and what you said earlier, you know, we are, we are the planet looking at itself or the universe looking at itself. And the, I mean, these are very deep ideas. Um, and it's like these ideas are not necessarily, or, or at least not on the surface, embedded in how we think about systems of um, economic inequality or the way we treat other species um, in these like very broad systemic ways. And sort of like if I was to think it up myself right now, I would be like, okay, well, we're the planet observing itself. Well, then maybe we should sort of care for the whole thing, right? But that's not exactly how it works right now. Um, so I don't know if I have a question here, um, but I wonder if you have a thought of like, how did we come here? And then it's like your role and also our role is to is to be in touch with that perspective and then sort of build a bridge with the way things are now without judging what already exists. Absolutely. I, I think it's exactly that is that you, you have to start from a fundamental place of acceptance, right? That like, this is the thing I try so hard to practice. And by that, I mean, the world is exactly as it is. There's a horrible war going on. There are lots of horrible things going on. There are also unbelievably beautiful moments. Like those things, each of that moment of terror and beauty, they exist in fundamental juxtaposition. But most importantly, they exist like baseline. And I find so often, particularly in Western thought, right, and I live in California, we spend so much time arguing about the state of the world in a way that feels antagonistic to the acceptance of what is actually happening. And I think if we could just start with, it just is. Now, what are we going to do about it? It's like a different framing than the one that we often have. And it's the one that allows me to be a venture capitalist because do I love what venture capitalists broadly stand for? Not really. In fact, right. I, I try to avoid saying that I am one in certain circles, but on the other hand, I recognize it as a very, very useful tool within a set of systems and a system dynamic that I think can shift things for good. And so because I accept the world as it is, but I would like it to move in a particular direction, ideally one of more equity and kindness and balance. And, you know, for the love of God, could we please just be kinder, not just to ourselves, but to animals and plants? 
I, I, I work with that within the system and the construct that I'm in because I think that's efficient. I respect people who are so at odds with the system and their experiences of the inequities of it that they just want to raise it to the ground. It's just not my path. Like my path is, I think we can do some good within the existing systems. I think there's an efficiency in that. I think it's an energetic efficiency. And I don't think that we should just burn everything to the ground for the sake of it, because guess what? That requires fuel. Uh, so why don't we figure out what systems and constructs and institutions we can leverage in our favor to build the more beautiful world. Like, I don't think we have to start from scratch. We have thousands of years of some pretty clever humans and all sorts of creatures putting systems in place that allow us to work in some level of harmony. You know, one, one thing I remember, uh, one of the most memorable, memorable conversations we had was about your decision process, which is at the core, I guess, of venture capitalism, which, which founders and which ideas and which ventures do you actually decide to back? And I thought your answer was so fascinating that the world should hear it. <laughs> um, so if you could, I'd just love to hear again that process that the two of you use when you decide what to do. Well, I think the first step is anytime Patrick and Troy walk into your office, you say yes. <laughs> um, but actually, right? So our fund, Future Ventures, is myself and my just brilliant co-founder, Steve Jurvetson. And our strategy is simple in a lot of ways. We fund, first and foremost, things unlike anyone has seen before. Because we're trying to fund the sector of the markets that isn't being well served. Not because we think we're necessarily smarter than everyone else, but we think when you're thinking about capital allocation, like why, why keep pouring more capital into spaces that everyone else has rushed to? Like that area is served. So first and foremost, we look and say, what is underserved? And then we say, what is underserved and has the largest points of leverage for the future, right? So when we look uh, on the climate side of things, we say, well, what are the biggest pain points? And what are the biggest pain points where the fewest companies are working on them? Because that's an area to go digging for something interesting. Uh, and we always pause and try to ask the question when a founder comes in and say, you know, they paint this beautiful picture of here's how we're going to change the world and how it will be better. And we say, awesome. And what are the ways in which it fails, right? What are the unintended externalities that creep in? What are the second order effects that actually undermine your fundamental mission? Because those always exist. And our sentiment is not that you can actually catch all of them, but to say, are we working with the kind of people who think about the longer arc of their existence? Because we're not interested in funding things that exist for a couple of years and have a flashy return. We are interested in funding the kinds of companies and people that history books will be written about because they changed the course of humanity and our continued existence on this planet for the better. And 
it doesn't seem like a very novel framework to me. It's, it seems like that's probably what venture capital should be doing, right? It's high risk capital. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, there's not all that many people. There are plenty. Uh, and, and we're lucky to work with them and be co-investors with them. But, uh, I, I think our, our perspective is, is to look at the longer arc and at the un, unanswered and underserved questions. I was thinking, um, just about the actual decision process, because, uh, we encountered so many investors who wanted endless due diligence and endless sort of proof that this was going to be something that was going to be worth their while. And, and I remember you said something like, um, you trusted the somatic experience of yeah. the moment. And just seems yeah. very unconventional. Well, I, I think constructing, constructing, constructing rational fallacies of, um, semi-factual analysis to make you believe your own worldview is like an interesting intellectual exercise, right? And, and like, we all do this in all sorts of ways in our lives where we're, you're like, oh, I really didn't need to eat this piece of chocolate cake, but like I ran three miles yesterday and I'm going to run five tomorrow. And so actually I needed that extra energy and it was good for me, right? Like we, we spend so much time in our lives running around creating justifications to cover our hind ends for the decisions we make. When at the end of the day, you kind of know pretty quickly whether or not something feels right or not. And I think when, when Steve and I look at an early stage investment, particularly like a properly early stage investment, right? At the, at the stage of ideation where the team is a handful of people, the product is a vision, revenue is like some laughably far place away because we're not even sure what the thing is. It, we can certainly generate questions to ask you, right? And those questions are like, what are the second order effects? Like we can ask all sorts of questions, but the questions we tend to ask are more elucidating of the character and the integrity of the entrepreneurs we're considering working with and less about, and how does your business work? And what's the bottom line? And what's the customer acquisition cost? Because Nobody can know that. Like you guys could generate those answers, but they're meaningless. The people who are receiving those answers know they're meaningless, but it covers their track record with the people who give them capital, right? So it's like this massive game of charades that so many people are playing to say, to, to justify like, oh, I made this as a rational decision. When if you're actually taking a risk on an early stage investment, you say, do I have a prepared mind in this space? Do I actually understand what the pain points are? Do I understand if there's a real market need here? And if that market need is potentially matched with market buying power, but that's entirely independent of the entrepreneurs, right? That's, that's dependent on their capacity to have found an interesting area. But if you come in with a primed mind, as you guys did with us, that enabling further biodiversity 
ecological restoration, bringing validity and verification to carbon markets. Like those are things we were really primed on saying, there's a huge need here. You don't have to sell us on that. And then our experience was, do we trust you? Do we trust your capacities to work well with each other, to inspire a team, to hire and keep a team focused on a topic? And do you have seemingly enough clarity in each of your minds and between the two of you that you can actually go and and pull a product thread out of that, right? Like streamline enough of consistent um, structured thought to actually build a thing. But those are all soft things, right? That, that's an experience if we sit around and we chat and we look at each other and say, do I, do I trust you? Are you, saying, are you saying things in a way that resonate with me? Which I think is the other thing is that so many times you sit in a room with someone who just doesn't resonate with you. And then you come up with all sorts of crazy reasons about why they didn't resonate with you and why they're wrong. And it's because of like, you know, this market dynamic of their company. But at the end of the day, like they just don't like you very much. And you didn't like them very much. And that's okay. Like it's not meant to be a perfect matching scheme. Um, so I think we're not afraid of that, um, particularly in the earliest stages where I think the generation of data for the sake of it is like a weird fool's errand. Um, unless you really just don't believe that like people know how to make spreadsheets look nice, in which case you should probably check that they know how to make spreadsheets look nice. Like that's a useful skill later on. I had a dream last night, I saw the ocean saw a fight The fight of people for their history and homes All remains I know, mystery and bones I saw the birth of a nation running towards its own extension I saw them digging, digging looking for something and I saw them drowning in their own coffin I wanted to dive one level deeper because you talked about your partnership with Steve in making these decisions. And, you know, I immediately related to me and Patrick of like, actually the level of coherence and trust between us sets the standard for everyone in our sphere. Um, and I wonder if you could you just share a few words about like, what is the relationship like between you and Steve and, and, or like even just like what is the importance of partnership in this journey? Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. Steve and I have known each other for years, and when we started the fund, um, I I think both of us had a sense of recognizing the value of dynamic duos and founding partnerships. Um, right, two people who have very different perspectives, different experiences, different backgrounds, but who have enough mutual respect that 
the muxing of those two lineages of thought result in a more fleshed out, considerate, and comprehensive um, way of looking at the world. And what was fascinating with Steve, and it's a partnership that I'm just so unbelievably grateful for. And I like, I don't know what I did right in a past life to, to have the exceptional fortune of um, co-founding this fund with him in that we are very different people. And yet we have really good models of each other. And so it was actually Steve who was first introduced to you both and took, I think, the first and maybe second call with you two. And I remember he got off the call and he wandered over to my office and he said, I just got off a call with these two really sharp guys. I can't really make heads or tails of exactly what they're trying to do, but I think you would like them a lot. And generally when he says something like that, he's right. Like he's got a really good read of the people I will most resonate with. And it's not that he didn't resonate with you. He just thought, oh, Mariana's going to like really just connect with these people. And it was so true where then in subsequent conversations with the four of us in a room, it, it was such an easy and obvious partnership for me to want to work with you guys and for Steve to say, I want to be in support of that. And I'm going to come in and ask all sorts of hard questions about the parts that I have questions on, but also trust that Mariana can handle the bits that she's most feeling connected to. And I think that's an important thing in any partnership is also, you know, both the, the, the overlap and the connection, but perhaps even more importantly, the, the distinguishing of your of each person's individual um i guess strengths and capacities and with steve and i i think we had originally thought we'll almost certainly have a third partner uh and now that we're coming up on four years and uh soon a third fund we've kind of realized like the efficiency of the the duo is so strong and we have such good models of one another and we're so fast at communicating. I mean, we still, we still communicate a lot, but there's also like, the, you know, now I just have the Steve voice in my head and I can hear him in conversation when I'm listening to a new idea and say, I love what you guys are doing. Also, when you talk to my partner, Steve, he's going to like eviscerate you on these three topics. Um, and so, you know, if you have strong answers to those, then like we should move on to partnership meeting. And, and I watch that he does the same. And so I think it's, it's the, the importance is, um, deep mutual respect, good models of one another. Um, but also leaving a lot of space for the person to surprise you. Uh, and Steve, for example, is just, it, I've not ever perceived him it's not that he wasn't politically engaged or active, but it wasn't necessarily central in his life. And the way in which he's shown up for me and in support of me and in my, um, you know, broader countrymen in this conflict in Ukraine is like, 
it's just a side of him I didn't know existed. And to see him care so much and pour so much effort and, you know, really pull on his network to figure out what the ways in which he can support, uh, it made me pause and say, wow, this is a person who I've worked with for years who I, you know, know so deeply and also like, he continues to delight and surprise me. And I think that in all partnerships, you know, working ones um, in particular, it's so important to leave that space, to not drive too strong of a model of who you're working with and allow them the space to just show up as they are. Because generally, if you're working with good people, when you allow them to fully show up, you're, they become even more brilliant. Time for a fun question. What left do we need to say? That's really important. Mm. Hmm. I think for me, it's just commenting on... There are lots of good businesses out in the world. And there are lots of businesses that will make lots of people money. But there are not a lot of things that are imperative for us to do on this planet. And that is what you guys are doing. You are doing something that is so necessary, so fundamental to all life continued existence, because it's all interlinked. And I would just ask your listeners to pause and consider what are the ways in which they're engaging in their lives with things that are imperative. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you for seeing us so deeply. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot podcast. To learn more and get involved with the work we're doing at Earthshot Labs, visit earthshot.eco. The Earthshot podcast was produced by Reculture Media, and the music that opened the show is by Little Whale.